Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Wednesday, March 9th. Coming up, what the experiences of Kansas City's Black World War I veterans can teach us about the durability of democracy and how to improve it. That was the only time that I ever felt like that, that was a full-fledged American citizen because they treated the black soldiers just like they treated the white soldiers. No difference whatever. We'll hear about an exhibit at Kansas City's National World War I Museum and Memorial. Plus, why do so few people in Kansas City take the bus? But first, some headlines. Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt is asking the Wyandotte County District Court to dismiss multiple legal challenges to Republican-drawn congressional redistricting maps. Blaze Mesa of the Kansas News Service reports from Topeka. Attorney General Schmidt originally asked the Kansas Supreme Court to dismiss the lawsuit, but the justices declined and left the decision up to the lower court. Now, Schmidt is turning to the county courts and argues neither federal or state law gives the judges the ability to reject the maps drawn for seats in Congress. The maps were challenged because they split up diverse parts of the state and included Lawrence in the same district as rural Kansas. Democrats argue that was done to dilute Democratic votes. Schmidt says there is not enough evidence that the state unfairly drew maps to benefit one party. Kansas City's new health department director, Marvia Jones, says violence prevention will be a main focus for the department. KCUR's Salisa Kalakal has more. Before joining the health department, Jones worked in public health and focused on violence prevention. She says being proactive about violence prevention means analyzing the conditions that impact a person's life and the conditions that may lead to violence in the future. Jones says one program that will be important in violence prevention efforts is Aim for Peace, a city initiative that takes a public health approach to reducing homicides. But it is one important tool um, because it is it involves people who are credible, um, who know the actors or who, who can get to know the people who are involved with these uh, incidents. The Aim for Peace program will receive about $837,000 in the upcoming city budget. With free bus fares, a growing streetcar line, and max bus lines, Kansas City's public transportation system has taken huge strides in the past decade. But the system still doesn't do a great job of moving passengers from east to west or west to east. On Up to Date, KCUR's Steve Kraske spoke to public transit researcher Yona Freemark of the Urban Institute on how else KC could encourage more people to ride the bus. With this, Yona Freemark is a public transit researcher at the Urban Institute. How would you describe Kansas City's transit system today, Yona? I mean, we are known as a car-dependent community, but one that needs a good public transit system. How do you see it? You know, that's absolutely true. Kansas City, like a lot of cities throughout the United States, is very dependent on driving. You know, more than 82% of people in Kansas City actually commute to work by driving and just 3% use transit today. Wow. So that indicates that most people are driving. But that said, there actually is a relatively robust transit system. And as you noted, they've been working on trying to expand it in, in a number of different ways over the last few years with the introduction of the streetcar service, with new bus rapid transit lines. In a nutshell, what would you say Kansas City needs to do to upgrade our system to make it, you know, more user friendly, more effective overall? One thing that's worth pointing out here is that though only 3% of 
commuters in Kansas City actually take transit to go to work today. More than 10% of the households in Kansas City actually don't have access to a car. So there's a big market out there of families who need better ways to get around. Right now, Kansas City has really focused on these north-south corridors. It built the streetcar. It built uh, bus rapid transit lines on Main Street, Troost, and, and Prospect Avenue. And those are all north-south, heading from the south down, up to downtown. I think that a big improvement could be providing that east-west service that some people are now talking about for the Kansas City, uh, going across state lines, and, and making sure that the connections are not just about going downtown. Hmm. Why would you think that east-west has uh, lag behind north-south routes in a city like Kansas City? What what would be the thinking there? Well, I can only assume that the state lines really matter, right? When you're trying to come up with a a project that's going to be funded uh, by local, state, and federal sources of money, and that is very important for projects like public transportation, you often have to think within your own jurisdiction. And the reality is it's often easier to think within your own state. And so I think all the projects that have been built so far have really focused on the Missouri side of the river. But the reality is that there are a lot of people coming over from the Kansas side who probably want to get access to downtown. And making that sort of east-west connection there is really important. So that means collaborating across state lines getting folks from Kansas and Missouri to work together. Paul Nakatura, our, our uh, host here this morning, has something he wants to say. Oh, yeah, I've been riding the bus for about uh, four months straight now, and it's really great. Um, so I want to commend the KCATA. Uh, the only thing I wanted to add is that um, since I'm a Kansan, um, all the routes were supplied by the uh, the United Government over in Kansas, or the Unified Government over in Kansas. They stop on the weekends, so I can't get like errands done or anything on the weekends. But this is in Kansas City, Kansas. You're talking about, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. The Unified right. Government does not run buses on the weekends, so so that's that, a problem. That, that that's a problem. But um, as far as getting to work here and getting home every day, pretty chill. Yeah. How about weekend ridership, Yona? Do you see it uh, cut off a lot of times uh, on Saturdays and Sundays? Yeah, that is a huge issue. And it's it's related to this frequency of service issue. You know, in some cases, uh, you know, as you noted, the uh, services literally just stop on the weekends. In other cases, they just provide a lot less options on the weekends. And I think in both cases, the reality is that people continue to have needs. You know, people have needs to have recreation, to go uh, do their their regular chores, things of that sort. And then there's the reality that, hey, guys, if you go to a restaurant, if you go to a movie theater, if you go to any other activity throughout the weekend, people are there working. Those people need to be able to get to their jobs. And the, the idea that transit just is going to stop over the weekend is ridiculous, given the fact that those people continue to need transit to be able to do their jobs. We sent our intern, KCUR's Eleanor Nash, out to collect comments from bus riders last week who were boarding buses at 39th and Troost. Frank Lewis, I am headed home from work. Well, right now it is free, so it used to be $50 a month, so I'm saving about $600 a year because it is free. Oh, since COVID, it's it, there's been a lot of negatives. A lot of people just don't take the, the COVID uh, protocols seriously, and it makes it tough on the rest of us who do. You know, have public transit systems, Yona, done enough to make sure that people wore masks and were safe aboard the buses? You know, this is an issue we're seeing in transit agencies everywhere. There is a set of riders who are not necessarily following the protocols, wearing masks, making sure they stay away from other riders. And then there's the majority of riders who are following the rules and who are concerned about 
making sure that they're able to protect their health throughout the rides. And transit agencies have had difficulty attracting some riders back because of the fact that people are just not super confident that they are going to be able to be comfortable on on the bus and train routes that are out there. That said, you know, I would remind readers that or listeners, I'm sorry, that the majority of people who use transit are just normal people who are going to be wearing their masks and who are doing so on a daily basis. Right. I take transit every day and the vast majority of people that I encounter on my daily basis are people who are wearing their masks and who are respectful of my personal space. And I think that that is the reality in most places around the country. You know, there's been talk. Do you see bi-state taxes around the country at all, Yona? Yes, we see it in some rare cases. I think the reality is that in, in, in most communities, it's difficult to achieve that sort of bi-state taxing uh, power because of the fact that obviously each state legislature has to pursue this independently. But, you know, over in St. Louis, there is a uh, light rail system that crosses between the Missouri and Illinois lines. And that's an example of sort of bi-state cooperation over the funding and operation Mm -hmm. of a transit system. And I think Kansas City could learn from that, try to make a similar type of arrangement between Missouri and Kansas. That was Yona Freemark of the Urban Institute speaking to KCUR's Steve Kraske on Up to Date. As images from a new war in Europe saturate news and social media feeds around the world, KCUR's Luke Martin takes a look at another set of wartime photographs housed at Kansas City's National World War I Museum and Memorial. Like the fighting once again underway in Europe, World War I was cast by many in the 19-teens as a war to make the world safe for democracy. But that was a complicated prospect for African Americans who faced widespread discrimination at the time. Still, 367,000 of them served the U.S., and black troops made up 13% of the armed services, even though they were just 10% of the country's population. A set of powerful images in an exhibit at the World War I Museum's website show the many roles they played. You have these pictures of individuals at rest and at play with their friends, relaxing, holding puppies in some instances. There's a lot of pictures of individuals holding animals in World War I. The exhibit is called Make Way for Democracy, and the museum's curator of education, Laura Vogt, helped put it together. And then you also have these beautiful images of strong men in military service showing off the innovative technologies that they have as part of their job. It really does show this quick insight. It captures this moment of their lives. For African Americans, that decision to go to war held an extra burden. There's a lot of conversation among the Black community as to whether or not they should become involved in military service when they were not granted full citizenship. And yet, when war was declared, You have a community of Black Americans who show this patriotism for a variety of different reasons, including they wanted to show they were deserving of that full citizenship that they were not yet receiving inside the United States. During a 1980 interview, Army veteran and Kansas native Robert Sweeney said his time serving in France prompted a poignant revelation. That was the only time that I ever felt like that that was a full-fledged American citizen because they treated the black soldiers just like they treated the white soldiers. No difference whatever. 
Vote says many in the U.S. military had doubts about the effectiveness of black service members. That helps explain why they were more likely to be assigned support or labor roles. African Americans also served as wartime entertainers. Clearly, the United States Army did not doubt their ability to perform well in music because they brought James Reese Europe to be the band leader for the 369th Regimental Band. James Reese Europe is credited for helping to create the Foxtrot. He is one of the first African Americans to have a recording contract. He is like the Jay-Z of the World War I era. Like everybody knew who James Reese Europe was. Among the beautiful black and white photos are some locals as well, including a man named Vernon Coffey. That photograph of then Corporal Vernon Coffey, it's almost like an ad for a movie. It's so stunning and it shows this adventuresome spirit. The photo shows Coffey seated in the sidecar of a military motorcycle, wool cap on his head, relaxed grin on his face. He was an attorney and a preacher. He later actually was the pastor at the first AME church in Kansas City, Kansas. Stories like his vote says that you won't find in history textbooks help explain the war more fully. That is part of our job is making sure that the diverse stories of World War I are easily accessible where people are looking for them. As the fight for democracy continues in the U.S. and beyond, those needing a reminder of its resilience would do well to take a look. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Luke Martin. You can find the Make Way for Democracy exhibit online indefinitely at theworldwar.org. This is Kansas City Today. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Luke's story about Black World War I veterans, visit kcur.org, where you can find more local news stories from Kansas City's NPR station. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.